Our scripture reading this morning comes from 1 Corinthians 4, 11 through 13. Even unto this present hour, we both hunger and thirst and are naked and are buffeted and have no certain dwelling place and labor working with our own hands being reviled we bless being persecuted we suffer it being defamed we entreat we are the offscoring of all things unto this day thanks Dave thanks Ron I just got quiet. Oh, there I'm back. Can you hear me? Welcome to the Eugene Church of Christ. <laughs> Glad you're joining us this morning. Maybe some from the parking lot and some from inside the building. We have some that are sick and uh, runny noses and different things to more serious concerns. And we just keep praying for everyone that you're doing well. But we rejoice and are thankful that we get to be together uh, this time this morning. Thank you for last week. Alicia and I were able to go to a Northwest Ministry Couples Retreat and get to see a lot of other uh, uh, men and women who are involved in uh, ministry here for Churches of Christ in the Pacific Northwest, catch up with friends and stuff like that. So we had a nice time in Cannon Beach and uh, are glad to be back and uh, Thankful for James Mead coming and uh, covering the pulpit last week, and I heard he did a good job, and uh, grateful for, for that. I haven't listened to that sermon yet, but I plan to. So uh, to dig in this morning, we're back in 1 Corinthians. I think to make sense of our verses today, we need to step back and just remind ourselves of the context of where we're at with this. And... Uh, We'll start in verse 318 and 19. Do not deceive yourselves. If any of you think you are wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools so that you may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. So how do you deal with self-deception? De self um, Paul says you, if you think you are wise, it's probably time to realize uh, you need to become a fool. Uh, and he's talking about us questioning our assumptions. Uh, about the time you think you have it all figured out is probably a good time to assume that, in fact, you don't. So that always keeps us in this uh, position of searching and seeking and looking for the answers that, that, that the Lord has for us. So the comparison games that the Corinthians were making, the divisions that they were fostering, they were in many ways blind to their own foolishness. They didn't see the waves there or the, the outcome of their uh, wisdom, the worldly comparisons they're making. And uh, Paul is reminding them, in Jesus Christ, you don't have to choose sides. In Jesus Christ, we're not playing a scarcity game where there's not enough to go around. And so he says this, all things are yours. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. And you 
are of Christ, and Christ is of God. It's all yours. We don't need to choose between our favorites, because your favorites are all yours in Christ Jesus. Every good and perfect gift from above is yours in Christ Jesus. Life, death, it doesn't matter. My my present circumstances, whether they're good, whether they're bad, uh, whatever the future holds, it doesn't matter. It's all ours in Christ Jesus. If you have Christ, everything Christ has, it is yours. All things are yours. And this verse is really a lot about freedom. And this verse is about not just freedom, but abundance. You don't have to play the game of an us versus them scenario. I don't have to pick favorites. I don't have to worry about there being enough, going around, uh, enough to go around in Christ Jesus. See, the mind of this world is get what you can while you can and fight for your fair share because in the end, that's all you can count on. It's whatever you can grab and take a hold of. Get it while you can because it's all going to come to an end pretty quick. That's not the mind of Christ. The mind of Christ is... Can't you see that it all belongs to you already? The mind of Christ is, there is no end to the generosity and goodness of my Father. There's just more to come, more to come. So this all goes back, what we're talking about now is Paul's theme of worldly wisdom versus the wisdom of God. See, in their pride, in their arrogance, in their immaturity, the Corinthians thought that they had wisdom. They thought they had the wisdom that they needed. They thought they knew how things needed to be run. They thought they knew how it needed to work. And they weren't shy in letting everyone else know that they need to do things this way or that. So one of the reasons why Paul sounds particularly harsh in the text we're going over this morning is because Paul is dealing with a particular kind of hard-heartedness here, an arrogance and presumption and pride that really you just can't tiptoe around it. Sometimes you have to face things head on. And so that's what Paul is doing here. He sounds harsh because I think he needed to be harsh. He needed to shock them into taking a look at the realities that they were creating in their blindness to the wisdom of God and taking on worldly wisdom. Now, brothers and sisters, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that may, you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. So Paul, you know, he's been doing this before, and he continues in our text today. He uses himself and Apollos as examples of what leadership in the church should look like. Uh, But in Paul and Apollos' absence, new people have stepped in, a new leadership that has... um, created this divisive situation or allowed this divisive situation of choosing favorites to uh, persist. And so these leaders had clearly gone beyond the example that had already been given by Paul and Apollos. So do not go beyond what is written. 
what does that mean? I think it's referring to Scripture here. Paul clearly referring to Scripture. He may even have particular Scriptures in mind. Uh, We don't necessarily know what those Scriptures are. I can think of a few that would apply. Um, I don't know what Paul had already previously shared with the Corinthians, but I think the point is, is just spot on here. And the idea is, do not go beyond what is written, because what happens when you go beyond what is written? When we move beyond the clear guidance of Scripture, uh, when we go beyond what the Scriptures say, we're entering into uh, the land of opinions, the land of gray area issues, the land of debatable matters. And so Paul, is he's kind of giving us a diagnostic tool uh, to recognize some of the things that happen when we move beyond what is written, when we move beyond what we find in the Word of God. Uh, when you move beyond uh, even what the Spirit helps reveal in the Scriptures, what happens? Paul says this is what happens. You get puffed up. If you don't do those things, if you do these things, if you don't go beyond what is written, then you will not be puffed up in being a follower of one of us versus another. So puffed up, what does that mean? It's a kind of pride he's referring to. We all know what it means to be puffed up, I'm assuming. Not like pufferfish or something like that. But Well, that's not a bad example. Anyway, I digressed. But I think Paul is giving us his tool to recognize, hey, you know, when you go beyond the clear guidance of Scripture, I'm not saying we don't have to go there. I'm saying watch your heart and the spirit behind your motivations. Because when we step into gray areas and debatable matters, things can go sideways very quickly. And that's usually the realm where people can't get along, opinions come in, churches split, things fall apart, relationships fall apart. Um, You know, we're meant to interpret the scriptures. We're meant to learn things from them. The scriptures don't directly apply to every conceivable situation we would face. But when we move beyond what is written in the Word of God, if our spirit is not right, when we get puffed up, things can go sideways very quickly. Uh, See, in human wisdom, the Corinthian leaders, they had made judgments and had created this divisive situation. They had made judgments and picking favorites. They had made judgments about who was most valuable, who was important. And think about this. These judgments, who do they really belong to? They belong to God. God is the one who needs to judge these things. So they are clearly going beyond what is written when they claim Uh, Christian maturity based on personal preference, eloquence, worldly wisdom, and who has what gifts. I've got these gifts. What gifts do you have? You don't have the same gifts. Well, bless your heart. Not everyone can be as valuable to the Lord as I am. 
For who makes you different than anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Paul unloads this buckshot now of rhetorical questions, three of them, rapid fire, to shock the Corinthians into confronting the spirit behind their thinking, confronting their own godless attitudes. Who? What? Why? These three questions cut right to the heart of what is wrong with the Corinthian church. Uh, The grace gifts you have, the talents you have, the blessings that you have, are they the result of your own hard work, your own good looks, your own smarts and cunning? Do they belong to you alone? Or does God have a hand in that? That's the question he's asking. Who makes you different from anyone else? And the what, we all define our what maybe a little bit different, but the what is, in the end, everything. A lot of times people attribute whatever is their what, they define as everything that they have done for themselves. And we tend to attribute a lot to ourselves and give God almost no credit whatsoever. And then we catch ourselves. Oh yeah, and maybe, maybe this is because of God. Maybe, maybe there is some kind of blessing there. Maybe there... And so we come with this attitude of my paycheck, my body, my stuff, my whatever... What this is, is it's the disease of pride on display. I call this, uh, look what I've done with the strength of my own hand syndrome. It's a bad syndrome to have. It's that story of King Nebuchadnezzar. Look what I've, spend some time in Daniel. Look what I've done. What a good preacher you are. I try to be a good preacher. Look what... Wow, you've done really well for yourself. You have really made a name for yourself. Wow, you're really smart. Wow, you are so good-looking. However, however the, we define the what. How quickly we forget what we have been given. How quickly gratitude fades away in our hearts. How quickly we develop a sense of entitlement. I deserve I need, I want. How quickly we assume. How quickly we pat ourselves on the back. How quickly we make judgments about 
who has potential and who doesn't. Well, if they would just do this, why can't they work harder? Why can't they get their act together? Why can't they? Judgments like, this one's, this one's the up and coming. This is the next great thing, the next great preacher, the next whatever, the rising star. This is how quickly we make judgments. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. You have begun to reign and that without us. Yeah, Paul's being a little sarcastic here, so it's okay. Let him cry. So I was looking at this verse. Already you have all of you want. You, you have all you want. Already you become rich. You have begun to reign and that without us. And it's really, I think he's setting up a juxtaposition with verses that he's already shared with us. Already you have all you want, 1 Corinthians 4, 8. Just a few verses before this, in chapter 3, 21b through 23, he has said, all things are yours. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. So on the surface, these simil- there's, there's similar statements, I think. What is the difference between these verses, all things are yours, and already you have all that you want? Don't they sound similar to you? But there is a difference. All things are yours. It focuses on the generosity of God. Already you have all you want focuses on what I've already attained for myself by my own strength and cunning. All things are yours results in this feeling of thanksgiving and gratitude. Already you have all you want displays a kind of blindness to the needs of others. All things are yours. And that gratitude and thanksgiving from the hands of God, that builds a community. You can build community on that kind of spirit of thanksgiving and generosity. Already you have all of you want. Creates independence, isolation, division. All things are yours, exalting God. Already you have all you want exaltation of the self. All things are yours. It invites humility. Already you have all you want. It's pride on display. The difference in these statements is the spirit in which these realities are held. It is the heart that is the difference, is it not? The reality of all things are yours and the reality of you already have everything you want, those circumstances may be very similar, but the spirit in which they are held is very different. Uh, For example, take two 
wealthy families. Let's say, uh, for example, these families each control $5 million in assets. We all know that they can hold those assets with very different strategies and have a very different heart uh, of generosity. Um, one thanks God, the other is worried about enough to go around. Who is judging who is worthy to receive what? Who am I going to bestow these gifts on? What am I... Or it doesn't have to be wealthy. Say it's poor. Say there's two poor families who have bad credit, can't get the ground under them going financially, so to speak. Again, their, their poverty is a very similar circumstance. One takes a victim mentality, blames others, is angry at the world, angry at not getting their fair share, bitter, and the other... They're happy because they know they have treasure in heaven. They have gratitude over the simplest things in life. They receive things in a spirit of joy and gratitude. So even though those circumstances can be very similar, the spirit or the heart sometimes can be very different. Do you guys see that? Am I explaining this well enough? How I wish that you already had begun to reign so that we also might reign with you. I think Paul is expressing a genuine desire here. Paul wishes that this really was the real deal. Real deal reigning, not counterfeit reigning. Because when it's real, there's enough of it to go around. In the real reigning in the kingdom of God, everyone gets to share in the blessings. So we know that the reigning that's happening in the Corinthian church, it's counterfeit because it's self-congratulatory and it's largely blind and not thankful to God. It's counterfeit reigning because it takes care of the needs of self, but is blind to the needs of others. That's counterfeit reigning. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession, like those condemned to die in the arena. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to human beings. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. We are honored, or you are honored, but we are dishonored. So there's definitely a contrast being made between the apostles and the Corinthian believers. We get that. Uh, I think we also would probably have some kind of idea of uh, maybe the history of, the, of what, it, what it was like being led into a procession in the arena. There's a reality there, a historical reality that Paul is speaking to, that imagery that they would have understood. But I'm not even going to get into that. I want to focus on how God 
is deliberately doing something to the apostles to make a showpiece out of them. He's putting these guys on display to teach other people things. See, all of the apostles, at one time or another, they're going through what anyone would understand to be horrible circumstances. Do you know how many of the apostles died of old age? Do you know how many of the apostles died of old age? How many of the apostles were rich by the standards of this world? I, I don't know. See, everyone would be looking at these guys and think, fool, weak, dishonored. That's what people thought of these guys. And just by looking at their circumstances. And so Paul now goes on to describe the harsh circumstances that these apostles they face. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We are brutally treated. We are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. And when we are slandered, we answer kindly. These guys are on display. Have you ever, guys ever played that little game, the game of life, that spinner thing? I love that little spinner on that game and that little white piece of plastic. That and then you get this little car and you get these little pegs to put in it. So it was easy. Well, there's just pink and blue pegs. And uh, you fill it up. This is how many of these. Here's the pink and blue peg in the back seat of the car. And the game of life. You can make certain choices. Go the college route. Go the whatever other route. Some of the circumstances that come. You know this game, don't you? Okay, a few of you are nodding your heads. Uh, some of you are like, no idea, Calvin. That's okay. Maybe you grew up in a different era or generation. Or maybe you're too young to remember that game. But anyone who looked at these guys' circumstances, these apostles' circumstances, they would look at the criteria that is measured at success and winning the game of life. And everyone would look at these men and say, these guys failed spectacularly. They did not win at the game of life. And yet, something did not add up. Because I have seen homeless people. I have seen people living in poverty and incredibly harsh circumstances. And they were broken by them. But these guys weren't broken. They 
hadn't given up. They hadn't capitulated. In fact, they were joyful. They were happy. They were passionate about what they did. You would think that anyone facing circumstances like this would be defeated. But they weren't. Because they had unshakable confidence and reckless joy in their king. And it made all the difference. So these guys, when they're beaten, when they're threatened, they speak boldly and say things like, you judge for yourselves whether it's right to follow God or follow man, but we cannot help. These are people who, when they are arrested and thrown into jail, they're confounding people because they're singing songs of joy. You see, we all envision a certain glamorous, beautiful life that we deserve as Jesus' disciples, meaning that we want easy circumstances. To live the good life, so to speak. We all want to, we all want to, we want to win at Jesus' game. But we also want to be what the world considers winners of the game of life. To have our cake and eat it too. And that's not all bad. I'm, I'm talking about my, I, I see this in my own heart. We all have ideas about what it looks like to win the game of life. I think it would be nice to be a fire guy. Do you know what a fire person is? An acronym, acronym FIRE. Financial independence, retire early. I'd like to have financial independence and retire early. I'm not a FIRE guy. That's one way to, to measure things, to think about things. I don't want to be a FIRE guy to like sip I don't know, tropical fruit punchy kind of drinks on a sandy beach somewhere with people bringing me food whenever I ring a little bell or I don't even know how that happens or that works, but I, I, I really want to just be an elder in the Lord's church and just Alicia and I serve. We'll get there someday when we're old enough that, you know, we'll let the young guys do the heavy lifting and whatever. And uh, I just get a, I get a, I like my dad. I'm going to be like my dad. He does stuff out in the woods. And I look through my news feed on my phone. I'm bombarded with news article about how do you get fire? How do you become financially independent and retire early? How do you uh, monetize your skills? How do you develop passive income streams? How much do you need to retire comfortably? What kind of 
why can't we depend on the 4% rule anymore? Or, no, we need to do this or that. Or, this is where you should invest. And it's all ideas about how to play the game of life. We try to live our lives based on our experiences, and we want good experiences. We try to stack them up. We love pleasurable things. Food, whatever. There's so many good pleasurable things. And we live our lives like it's all a princess cruise. And I think a lot of the atrophy and the weakness and the half-hearted laziness of a lot of Christianity today, it's not because our circumstances are so bad, but because they're so very good. And we have lost gratitude. And we're self-congratulatory. And we don't thank God. And when things are really good for a really long time, we start to think, I don't deserve anything but ease and comfort. But this is what the apostles get. We have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world, right up to this moment. Scum of the earth. That is our foundation. That is the legacy of the greatest among us. I like that word scum. Uh, and the word garbage, I don't think that's a strong enough word. What that means literally in Greek, you could say refuse, you could say other things. If you have a dog, think about stepping out in the backyard and you feel something warm and squishy between your toes. That is what Paul is talking about. Sometimes circumstances might come that we look at those circumstances and we think, that's scum, that's garbage. But if Jesus is our Lord, instead of being broken, we reign together with him. We may have scummy, horrible circumstances, but instead of giving up, we double down. Instead of just crying tears of bitterness and pain, my tears are mingled with hope and joy as well. Paul is describing what life is like in the kingdom of God. Life in the kingdom of God is bigger than the circumstances you and I inhabit. My circumstances may be great. 
My circumstances may be scum and garbage. People can be saying, hey, here's the next rising star. Or that guy's a scum bucket. Doesn't matter. Peter describes this too, another apostle we know. First Peter 1.4, he says, uh, you know, the world might say scum and garbage, but we have an inheritance that does not perish, spo- perish, spoil, or fade. It doesn't diminish. It doesn't lose its luster. It just gets better and better. So Paul's message invites us to look at the Spirit with which we hold the circumstances of life. That's the sermon in a nutshell. It takes me a long time to say things. In what spirit do you hold the blessings of God? Is it a spirit of all things are yours in Christ? You don't have to pick and choose. There's enough to go around in the kingdom of God. Or is it a spirit of, I'm fine. I've already got everything I want. I don't know why you people can't get your act together, but come on over here and, and, and fix things. When you get things fixed up, come be a part of what I got going on here. A lot of Christians go through a lot of unnecessary pain and anguish because they're fretting over their circumstances when we think that we're not getting a fair handshake, when we think that the circumstances I inhabit are not what I deserve and they're not good enough. And the truth is they're not. And you do deserve better. But we suffer because we haven't come to terms with being scum and garbage in this world. We haven't come to terms with what it's like to cling to Jesus Christ and hold on to him no matter what anyone else is saying. And even if my present circumstances are miserable, if you have Christ, what does the the rest matter? I don't really care if someone thinks what I'm doing is foolish. This guy talking about stuff. What what do churches do anyway? What are they? Fairy tales. I don't care about any of that. I don't care what people say. I do, but I don't. Because I'm not. But at my best moments, when I see my Savior before me, and I think about what He has done for me and on my behalf, And I realize my own corruption, the brokenness of my own heart, my own need. I don't care about any of the rest. I want to know Christ. And the power of his rising to share in the fellowship of his suffering and become conformed like him in death. I want that so that by any possible means in Christ Jesus someday I might obtain to the resurrection of the dead. 
promise of heaven is not that you're going to make a million bucks. You may or may not. Some of you already have. It's not as great as it's cracked up to be, maybe. I don't know. The promise our Savior gives us is in this world, you will have trouble. But take heart. I have overcome the world. BP, you can come up here. If you need to uh, ask for the prayers of the church, if you want to put the Lord on in baptism, um, find ways to take the next steps you need to in your relationship with the Lord. I don't know. I don't know where you're stuck. I don't know where your circumstances are really good and you just don't think you need anything or your circumstances are really bad and you can't fix them and you're not getting your fair share. But I know someone who has everything you need. And whether your circumstances are scum and garbage or not, he overcomes. And he invites us to that too. So let's uh, stand and sing this next song together.